HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Our master cheesemaker program is one of the only two in the world. So it's no wonder every master in America has called Wisconsin home. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief. With me, your host, Zara Tangora, and my mom, Bobby Conforto, who is unfortunately not with us for the intro today, but worry not, folks. Uh, she will most definitely be here for our episode today. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. It's so wonderful um, to be able to spend this hour with you. And today we have an amazing guest, um, someone who is so sweet and dear and uh, just a person who I admire for their creativity and their lust for life and their sense of humor and just an all-around wonderful human being. Um, Anthony Johnston is here today on the show with us. Um, Anthony joins us from his home in Los Angeles, California, where he is a TV writer. And Anthony has been um, a creator of all kinds, an artist, a performer, an actor, um, and now he is has a wonderful career in TV writing out in LA and we're so proud of him and so deeply honored that he spent this time with us um, talking about the loss of his sister. And uh, yeah, it was a really beautiful episode and a really special episode. And we really got into some interesting kind of corners about, I don't know, just loss and trauma and grief and uh, McDonald's fish fillet sandwiches. And we laughed and we cried and it was wonderful. Um, yeah, I've said it in this episode and I've said it many times before. It's such a absolutely hugely generous thing for everyone that comes on the podcast to, to share because it's extreme emotional heavy lifting. And, you know, we ask folks to come on the show and, and share their stories and they do so candidly and so bravely. And then, you know, the episode is over and we know we all hang up and, um, get off of the call. And uh, I know that our guests are left to still be thinking about the, you know, the topic, the person, the loss, the grief that they've drummed up. And I think it's just important to honor what a big ask that is, because it's not just the hour. I mean, I don't want to speak for anybody, but I would assume, and I know when I speak about some of the own, my own painful experiences and grief experiences, it's not just the hour and then you shut it off. You know, it it's... um it's a big thing. And so we are 
so deeply grateful for everyone that comes on to share and for everyone who listens, you know, because talking about grief is, is heavy lifting for everyone, right? It's much easier to, you know, listen to things that are kind of fluff and filler. And I highly support that as well. We all need fluff and filler Um, and everything in between. So anyway, that's all to say that I love Anthony and he's amazing. And uh, yeah, I I know that you all will too. Um, So please enjoy this conversation and uh, just a quick plug for the show. If anyone does feel compelled and has time to go ahead and leave us a quick rating, uh, review, subscription. Um, it really, it really does help. It helps grow the show and, um, make the show more, uh, accessible and visible to other folks who might need it and feel like it's helpful to them. So yeah, it'd be great. And if anyone out there listening, uh, would like to write us a letter or would like to be a guest on the show or has, you know, any kind of comments, negative or positive about the show, some feedback you'd like to offer us, um, we'd be happy to have it. And yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, all of you for listening and, uh, take care of yourselves and each other and enjoy our conversation with Anthony. I mean, today is a very Hi. special episode because we are joined by our dear friend, Anthony Johnston. Anthony is joining us all the way from Los Angeles, sunny Los Angeles, California. Exactly. Sunny Los Angeles. Oh my gosh. I remember the last time I saw you here in New York City. We were having some drinks and it was fun. And I remember you were going off to, to be a, a TV writer, which is what you do now. Yeah, yeah. I remember last time I saw you, too. We were in uh, Lower East Side, Chinatown, and we were having cocktails, and it was in the pre-times. Everything was different. Yes, that hugging. Bar was so crowded. <laughs> we yes. were hugging. No worry about closeness or spittle or distance. We were all like, get in here. But yeah, I'm just like, I've been so excited because... We met when you were working at Roman's as a server and I would come in all the time as a hungry patron on my days off from work and just like, you know, instant kind of bond connection. And uh, it's just been really nice because I remember going to your one amazing one man show, which I want to get into later and talk a bit about that because as it pertains to why you're on the show today. But um, yeah, it's just been wonderful to kind of see like what you've been able to do with your incredible talents. You're such a funny and vivacious and intelligent and cool person. And it's just awesome to see you. You're just doing it. Well, you're making me blush over here. Those are all such sweet, (laughs) amazing things to say. Yeah. I'm so happy to be here. And uh, like I said, before we started recording, I, I said, I'm a little nervous for some reason, but um, I don't know, excited to talk to you and really, really happy to to reconnect with you and and do this. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome. And it's, uh, it's wonderful. I think when, you know, we've had a kind of a bunch of different guests, I think like who a lot of you folks know each other, you know what I mean? Like between like Tova and AD and Millicent and like, it's awesome to just kind of, you know, like every now and then someone's like, Hey, I think I'm, I'm ready to come on the show. And that's like so heartwarming. And it's nice to have that kind of like whole kind of connection and, 
Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about just like kind of get into it. Like you are from the wonderful country to the north of yes. Canada. I am Canadian. I'm very Canadian. I've lived all over Canada. Um, yeah, I was born in Montreal and I grew up in Winnipeg, mm. in the very center of Canada, wow. uh, just north of Fargo for those oh. who are trying to um, imagine where Winnipeg is. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, then I went off to college in Vancouver, and then I lived in Montreal again, and then Toronto, and yeah. all of that before I moved to New York. So this is a genuine curiosity. Uh, you know, I think a lot of us idealize Canada, especially during some of the darker political times uh, that we have in this country, which, I don't know, is usually always, <laughs> and to one extent right. or another, right? <laughs> and there's a lot of, but you know... More so when, like, during a Trump or a Bush presidency and folks are always like, oh, I'm, like, ready to move to Canada. What is Canada like? Is Canada all we make it out to be? Uh, in some ways, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Canada's great. It's, uh, there's not very many people there. Like, when I, you know, realized the um, stat of there's more people in the state of California than in Canada. I, I think about that a lot in terms wow. of, um, you know, like where I live now in LA and, and the United States as a whole in, in comparison to Canada. But um, definitely, you know, it wasn't until moving from Canada to New York and to the United States that I began to really have a sense of um, patriotism for my country and for Canada and being Canadian um, of course, I was like 25 at the time, but, yeah. you know, moving to the U.S. and like seeing some of the the bigger differences, um, you know, in terms of uh, even, you know, like things that obviously have changed a lot since 2008, uh, hopefully for the better. But, you know, moving from Canada to New York and seeing how free some people were in like a really... Um, kind of casual setting to just be kind of like racist or homophobic or misogynistic mm -hmm. in ways that Canada, I think had already really started like hammering down on. And right. like, you know, there was a real awareness of, no, people don't talk like that. People don't right. think that way. And yeah, um, yeah. I remember being kind of shocked when I first moved to New York at just meeting other people, even my own age that were just casually, um, politically incorrect, which I, I think there's also the other side of that where people have argued that Canadians are too um, sensitive or um, <laughs> yeah. worried about correctness. Um, well, interesting. Yeah, I, I haven't spent much time up there, but I remember, Bobby, we did go to Canada briefly. We had a mm -hmm. brief stint in Montreal and it was lovely. Mm -hmm. And I've been dying to get back. And, you know, I mean, yeah, I always want to kind of see what it, what it measures up to in terms of like how much better. And I, I believe that what you're saying is true, that Canada is all it's expect we expect it to be and more. And you are clearly Canadian, like the soda. But the other thing, too, that's funny is, yeah, like I think um, Canadians who have left and moved to the States. Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe those <laughs> maybe maybe uh, uh, those Canadians um, are are pursuing something that maybe makes them like. Um, have an open mind to certain mm. things and want to explore the world. So when people meet Canadians abroad, people think of Canadians as being so polite and um, right. 
uh, so kind. And I think that's a really great stereotype, of course, of Canadians. But I'm also here to tell you there are assholes in Canada, just <laughs> like there are everywhere. you were here first. Yes, totally, yeah. of course. <laughs> they're, so, they're all over the place. <laughs> they're everywhere. So growing up, what was the family structure like? You know, were your parents together? Did you guys have a close-knit family? What was What was your family life like? Yeah, my parents were together. They're still together. They're together now. Um, I actually was just back in Vancouver um, a couple of weeks ago, first time getting to reunite with my parents and um, a lot of my family that I hadn't seen for almost two years because of COVID, of course. Wow. Um, and I was there for my parents' 40th wedding anniversary. <gasps> That's cute. Um, yeah. So they've been together for a while. They're going strong. Uh, I have three sisters. Um, so um, yeah. There's my older sister, who we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. um, and then my two younger sisters. And, yeah, it's interesting to talk about that dynamic. My mom um, had two marriages before my dad, so it really is like a third time's a charm thing for them wow. to be together for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but wow, she was married amazing. twice before him. And in her second marriage, she had my older sister, Tanya. And... Um, yeah, like Tanya and I were always really close and her father was never really in the picture for her. Um, I never even caught a glimpse of him my whole life until at her funeral, which is a whole other thing to suddenly see this person that um, is the biological father of your sister that is your family and you have like a... Um, of course. Yeah, like an ownership of her. And you're like, who are these people? You were never around. But um, all that to say that, like, I think especially since her death, I've had, like, an extra awareness on the the explaining or the, like, language of, like, well, she's my half-sister. Because, of course, that's, like, a technical term, which um, doesn't really mean anything to me in terms of, like, our connection or who she was to me or, or what we are as a family. Um, so I think it's something I've thought about a lot in that time. Yeah. So how many years did you live together? Or how many years did you know her? How old was she when she passed? She was 38 and I was um, 27 mm-hmm. Yeah. when she died. Yeah. Yeah. You know, going back to what you were saying, Anthony, like, that's an interesting thing. I think that we see a lot in grief is like the need and Bobby, you would probably know more about this, but the need to like kind of explain your, your reason for grieving. And as though there's a metric, you know, like, exactly. yeah. right. Like I've known people actually, and I know a woman who was dating a guy for maybe like six months and he died by suicide after that. And it was really hard for her because um, she had only been dating him for six months and maybe she didn't know a lot of the friends yet. She hadn't been fully in his life, but like her grief and pain was extremely real. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that is yeah. like, and the way, the need to kind of defend and be like, but you know, I know we were only dating for six months or it was my half sister. It's like, it's your, it's whatever it is to you. You know what I mean? Like you said it yeah. perfect. Sorry. It's the, it's using, having to use a metric. And sometimes we want to compare, uh, we're grieving a lot or a little, it, there's no measurement. I think it's a perfect way of putting there is no metric. It's the relationship and it's how you feel and it's how you feel. Right. And we, yeah, and we, yeah. yeah. We had a gentleman who joined us a, a couple of months ago and he had um, 
been grieving the loss of his stepfather, you know? And I think like he, we also kind of honed in a lot on that, like talking about like, well, oh, it was my stepfather. It was my real father. But it's like, it's your, <laughs> this is like your yeah. one life <laughs> and these are your relationships and they're so personal and your pain around it is like yours. And it's an interesting why societally, I think it's because the the need to define that comes from like the societal expectation. It's not from you. Your pain is your own. Your relationship with this person is your own. It's interesting to me why people outside as like onlookers on our grief or our pain or our specific situations feel the need to put that on our specific pain. Like, you know, well, yeah. she didn't need to feel that way. They were only knew each other this long or he shouldn't have. Yeah. For anyone to say, well, she was your half sister. Right. Like, what the right. hell does that mean? Right. Or yeah. I remember a specific time I, I was working at a, a restaurant in New York and a woman I worked with said something like, well, hasn't it been six months in relation to yeah. the amount of time since my sister's death and some kind of idea of where my feelings should be, which is right. so hilarious to look back on now because now it's been, um, you know, 11 years and I'm still feeling all those same things. So to think back to how upsetting that moment was to have someone say, well, hasn't it been six months? Is uh, Now now that kind of makes me laugh that that, that person even uh, thought to say that to me. Yeah, but, um, but definitely I feel like I've always been someone that um, like – you know, is someone that is all, all about sharing and that's the family I come from really open, kind of loud, yeah. um, transparent kind of family. We're not hiding anything. Yeah. And, um, cool. I think I've always been that kind of person. And honestly, like I realize that I've had a really like, you know, overall very like privileged, happy kind of charmed life in a lot of ways that I'm so thankful for. Um, like the, the family I come from and, and, um, you know, the family and friends that I have and have always had. Um, but, you know, then when my sister died, I think it was the first time I'd experienced that kind of, um, kind of like tear or breaking or like kind of pain in my life. And I, I, I really wanted to, um, I guess without like it being such a conscious thing, I, I was found myself in a position of wanting to like share all the pain, just as I had in my life, I think before her death, just shared, you know, joy and happiness <laughs> that, that like I was finding in, in my life before. Um, not that like when she died, suddenly everything that was like great in life disappeared, but um, definitely I was feeling a lot of new things and, um, you know, navigating this pain. And I like felt that suddenly I was this person that like, you know, in terms of like quantifying or measuring grief, I definitely went through a stage of wanting to like try to make sure everybody knew how important this person was and also kind of like wanted to like retell the story or, um, you know, even with my work, you mentioned the, the show I had done, you know, a lot of that work ended up being about grieving and her and loss and, and the pain. And there's part of me that has felt over this time, like if I can make myself feel the raw, um, like horror and pain again, anew and fresh, then I'm like somehow, you know, this is maybe a little misguided, but then I'm somehow like honoring her and not letting myself forget her because the idea of like not feeling that pain makes me feel like, well, 
then what? Then I've just like let her go or something. And I don't want to go that way. Of course. You're saying so many things uh, that are so important. You know, one of them is that we also live our life to honor them. So it doesn't just have to be the pain, but I can completely understand what you're saying that there's the depths of that feel like an honoring that if I, I should, I can go that deep and this matters that much to me. And I want to show that I wanted to point out something else. You know, we've talked about on another show about disenfranchised grief. And siblings are disenfranchised grievers because rarely does someone consider the sibling the way they would a spouse or a parent. You know, it's just different. And the sibling, how's your parents doing? How are they? Or how is the, mm. the partner or the spouse? And so um, that may be another part of wanting to talk about it. But the other thing is that you're a storyteller. And so, you know, that's right. what the show is about. It's about the stories that we all have to tell about the things that matter most to us. Absolutely. You know, I felt that way, Anthony, when my dad died. And it's interesting, you were kind of talking about like, first of all, the first thing I connected with what you were saying of like that shock almost of like that first thing that happens to you when like you feel pain of that magnitude for the first time. It's like a first of anything. It's like the first time you have sex or the first time you break a bone or the first time like it's just this like shocking thing that you can never unlearn right? Like it will just be in you forever. And you're like, wow, like somebody died that I love. And this is what it feels like. And it's so surprising almost like it's, I always describe it as feeling like nothing and exactly how you thought it would feel in a way. Like it's so bad, but it's also so surprising. Like, I don't know. I just found so many surprises in it, but it is yeah, like a, yeah. a, such a pivotal un you know, you just, then you're, then you are now a person who has lost a loved one, you know, and like you enter a different rank of like life and it's interesting, you know, and it's hard. Yeah, definitely something that, yeah, changed me in profound ways forever. Um, and yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's I think really. Your word tear was perfect. I thought so tear. too. Yeah. I, I, I thought so too. And then, um, yeah, the other thing that I, you had mentioned that I also really connected with is about, you know, when you're talking about honoring her and honoring her through talking about her and feeling pain and like constantly remembering it. Cause I, I remember when my, when my father passed away also feeling like, where does, like, I asked myself, like, where does this love go? You know what I mean? Like you have like a physical manifestation of like a person to put your love into, right? You can call them. You say, I love you. You see them, you hug them. You can write them a letter. You can buy them a present. You can go to on a picnic with them or you can fight with them. Anything, any way that you like interact lovingly and caringly with somebody in your life. Uh, and then when they die, it's like, what the fuck do I do now? What do I do with this yeah. emotion? Like, how do I even connect with you? And like, I have personally felt that feeling of like, if I don't feel pain, if I don't talk about you, if I don't cry about this, if I don't, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, well, then are you even there anymore? Like, where are you? You know, that's exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly how it felt. Like if I don't, um, keep like trying to like, you know, I don't want the wound to scab over and heal, yeah. you know, I think I feel differently about this now. But at the time, it was yeah. really like, a, oh, I've got to keep like picking at this wound mm. so that I can um, remember how important she is and was. And um, yeah, I remember definitely feeling like when I got back to New York City, 
after being um, in Canada and Vancouver with my family, just after her death, um, returning to New York and looking around at like everybody on the street and really feeling like, oh, so all of these people are just going on with their lives. Mm -hmm. Like nothing happened. Like they don't even fucking know that this like huge, uh, terrible loss has happened. Um, And it was, it was really interesting to, to realize that it was almost like this, um, this, there was like two sides of that, that coin, this feeling of like, what I just described, which I think in some ways feels so selfish, like, oh, the whole world is about me and my pain. No one else understands it. And then the other side of that was moving through this grief and becoming so, um, you know, seemingly connected to everybody because there was the side of like, no one understands this. And then the side of like, oh, I see this like woman looking kind of sad on the subway maybe she lost her sister or brother or someone mm-hmm. um, and kind of having those two things happen at once. Um, the feeling really alone and also feeling like, Oh, now I'm connected to every single other human mm-hmm. being who's ever lived and lost. Yeah. In a time. comrade and an alien at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, when your sister passed, um, you were working in restaurants at the time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, something we had talked with Tova about and something, you know, I've personally experienced, I know a lot of other folks have, um, it's a very interesting, and I mean, any profession, I guess, that you're doing at the time when you experience a loss has its own intricacies. But I mean, we can just speak from what we know as like service industry people. It's a very interesting place to be when you're suffering a loss. And I think, you know, from my own experience, uh, it's easy in a way because a, you know, you can lose yourself a bit in your work more. So I think in the back of the house, obviously working in the front of the house, you're really like feeling the need to be engaged and, I would venture to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's a lot of output, right? Like emotional output, which you're already doing a lot of output as someone in the front of the house. For anyone who's never worked in restaurants, just know that when you go in a restaurant, <laughs> your server is giving a lot all the time. So be kind. Um, but how did that feel for you to be to be working in that way? And how did you kind of cope through that? What were some of the kind of, you know, what was the experience like? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I hear what you're saying and, and fully, um, yeah, I can only speak from my own experience as someone from the front of house and, and a server. And I know that is very different in restaurants, you know, uh, vastly different for people working in the back of house. Um, but in terms of my own experience, it, it, working in restaurants as a server at that time, I think her death also highlighted this feeling of like, well, what's the fucking point of any of this? Because, you know, my dream wasn't to work in restaurants and it wasn't my plan to do it for as long as I did, even, even though some of the greatest relationships and people I've met have been through restaurants. And I actually feel um, so thankful to have worked in um, a handful of the places I got to work and to learn about food and, people and um, connecting through that work. Um, But definitely at the time of Tanya's death, um, I don't know. I think, yeah, I think I was very much um, someone who wasn't 
hiding things. Like the veil was really thin. So mm. I like went back to work at this restaurant I was working at in Brooklyn. And it was the kind of thing where, you know, people would be at a table and I'd come over and say, oh, hi, how, how are you doing tonight? And they'd be like, okay, how are you? You know, if they were mm. the kind of people that would say, how are you back to me, which not yeah. everybody does. <laughs> yeah. And if they would, I'd be like, oh, well, you know, my sister just died yeah. three weeks ago. And then, of course, that would create more often than not, like, you know, an awkward uh, vibe. <laughs> but yeah. also, it was all I could do for me at that time. I I, um, I didn't know how to um, uh, compartmentalize very well or or hide that and I think yes as much as that would <laughs> that would be like oh awkward <laughs> sad grieving server was just here um <laughs> I also the you know as a server in those moments of work but also in all the other ways that I was just constantly like vomiting out my feelings to people yeah. I think it allowed me to connect and meet a lot of other people that were in mm -hmm. um similar places in various ways you know like <laughs> I don't know. I, I do remember speaking with Tova when I started working at Romans, which was two years after, I guess, both of us lost our, our siblings. Yeah. Um, and just because it was something that like came out as something that was still like, you know, a, a, a visceral um, open store in my life, it, it did. And Tova was then able to respond, oh, I know how you feel because I've also lost someone. And that's huge. In that way. And that's, and that's yeah. huge. And, you know, I always say this and I really believe it. It's a real shame that, and I don't actually know how it is in other countries or cultures specifically. I've heard from folks from other countries and in different cultures about how death is dealt with. We obviously really try to sweep pain, grief, death under the rug rather than embracing it as something that is such a reality. The one, the one unifier, there is literally only one thing that actually happens <laughs> to every single person, you know what I mean, in this life is that yeah. you you die, you lose people, right? And for some reason, we have decided we just, we shouldn't really talk about that. And it's a shame because it is horribly painful, but I feel like it's made worse often by like the fact that we think it's taboo and then like we shouldn't speak about it. And I really like, you know... I really respect that of like someone asking me how you are. I kind of did the same thing. People would ask me how I was at that point in my life when I was in deep grief and I was like, I'm shitty, you know, and people yeah. aren't used to hearing that. They're like used to being like, I'm good. How are you? But it's like almost like it's like a challenge, right? Like you did ask how I am. Like this yeah. is how I am. And, and how are you? And also, and also I think it's really valuable as a server particularly to say that because I think a lot of times the server is like, or the restaurant workers, the chef, the back of the house, whatever is like this Oz like person. I mean, workers not, in general, not human. right? Not human. Right. They're just there. They've appeared right. out of dust. They right. don't have a backstory. They have no and lives. Right. So, so therefore I can kind of like make my petty demands extremely important. I don't have to really like think about respect as much as I would with another human being. And it's important, I think, to like, it's almost like a standing up for like workers in general to be like, actually, I'm a person with feelings. You've asked how I am and now this is how I am. So consider it, you know? Yeah, well, You also definitely. talk about authenticity. You yeah. talk about, you know, being authentically who you are. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's yeah. And, and it's brave. Yeah, because working, I mean, 
working at Romans, that was a really special place and a special time there. I think um, I wasn't working at Romans when Tanya died. I started two years later mm-hmm. at Romans. But um, working there, they really cultivated a space, which I'm sure you know and remember, yeah. you know, where I did feel like a real human being who was being yeah. seen. Um, which sounds like the bare minimum of anywhere, but that (laughs) sadly wasn't the case at a lot of restaurants that I um, had worked before then and a couple after Romans. So um, yeah, like having a, uh, uh, having feeling like you're not seen, I find so painful and hard to navigate um, as it is. And I'm sure there's different people that have different ways of coping with that. You know, I feel like I see some people in certain types of jobs and roles where they seem to be doing a really great, um, great job or, or seem to be very capable of, um, you know, I'm a security guard or something like right. that's the kind of yeah. person I'm picturing, like who like they know sure. how to like just do that. And I've, I've never been really that kind of person. So yeah. um, when I, was a waiter for many, many years of server forever. Um, when I had a night where like, it felt like no tables could recognize my humanity. I would like, would feel like insane and like yeah. sad and, and pained by that. Um, so it was really nice to figure out ways. Um, this is outside of the grieving, just ways to like connect with people, mm-hmm. um, human to human yeah. in restaurants. And those are always the best restaurants. Anyway, when I go to restaurants, I want to like mm-hmm. talk to the server. I don't want to like ignore them and talk to the person I'm dining with I kind of am at the restaurant to have the experience of whoever's going to be there to like host us and that's part of the the great thing about restaurants yeah the connecting yeah I mean it's and I think also one of the I don't I mean I don't know how you felt about this but one of the other kind of I think like I I hesitate to use the term real people because like everyone is a (laughs) real person obviously we know that but the kind of folks that you work with in, in, in restaurant jobs, a lot of the times are just like these kind of, I don't know, they become close to you for multiple reasons, right? It's the time spent. It's like the work you're doing and it's like, you know, at the worst of times and us against them kind of thing. And at the best of the times it's us with them, but you do cultivate these really intense relationships. And like you were kind of just talking about with Tova, like, you know, to be able to kind of, just hone in and zero in on someone who like understood your pain. Like that's a, that's a special thing. Cause it does feel like people don't understand sometimes. And, and you know what, like the thing is like, just kind of a sidebar, like a tangent, like people say this sometimes, like I felt like nobody understood what I was going through. You know what I mean? And then to the counterpoint will be, but everybody understands because everybody goes through grief. But like at the same time, kind of nobody does understand what you're going through. Like they do and they don't. Cause it's like, it's not many people talk about it enough. Right. If but it's also yeah. so And personal. nobody knows that person in that yeah. specific relationship. Exactly. Like, not even, like, you know, I feel like my parents and my sisters can understand the closest, but also none of them know the, the like jewel that was just mine and my sister's relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, only we knew that. Um, so in that way, you're right that, you know, we can empathize and understand and, and be there for each other. But you're right that like each person's connection with someone else is so special and unique. You, yeah. No one else can fully, fully yeah. understand that. And like your and that's pain, part of the telling of the story. I mean, that yeah. is right. Yeah. And like, yeah. 
when you feel that feeling of like my pain is the worst pain that's ever existed, it's kind of true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, cause <laughs> right. it's true to you. Like, it, and, and I think there's like a importance in honoring that because I think the counter is that we're always like, no, somebody else has it worse. And I guess if you were to break down, like technically what makes one situation quote unquote worse than the other, sure. But like, it's your pain. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's like your feeling and it's the worst because it's the worst to you. And it's because like you lost your person and, and it's specific. And I think in honoring that actually is one of the kind of most valuable lessons you can learn and one of your biggest tools instead of, you know what I mean? Like, cause I think passing it off as unimportant or not as, not as bad or as somebody else's pain. I don't know how useful it is really. So Anthony, I actually have a question for you. How was the death of your sister um, unique in the sense of losing a sibling? What does that really mean to, what did it mean to lose a sibling? What were the things that you lost in losing a sibling? Well, gosh, my sister was 11 years older than me. Um, and then it was me and my two younger sisters. Um, so she was, the age gap was such that like when I was a kid, she was a cool teenager. So, Mm. Um, when I was young, I had a real relationship of looking up to this amazing, cool, um, funny, beautiful, like really interesting person who, you know, when she wasn't home, I'd want to sneak into her bedroom and like look at the, <laughs> you know, rock and roll posters on her walls and, um, you know, look at her jewelry and just think of how cool she was. Um, and you know, I would, um, watch her play Nintendo for hours and then she would get up and go. And I would be kind of devastated because I would be like, Oh, isn't it my turn to play and you watch me? And she didn't want to like sit around and watch me. She was like, (laughs) then going to go out with her friends and like be, you know, a 16 year old. But, um, I was always there to like watch her and, um, see everything she was doing and kind of, um, learn how to be like a cool older person from her, I think. Um, and then it was really exciting, you know, as I grew up, um, into an adult to see this like amazing shift happen in a relationship where something that felt, um, uneven just in terms of like our age and her being kind of like, um, the person for me to look up to. I think in my twenties, something exciting happened where we became like more equals and really became like deeply best friends. And when I like first realized a couple moments where I felt like she was like looking up to me for things, um, it felt really kind of special to like have that, um, kind of manifest and like change and, and, move and you know she was one of the first people that I came out to um when I was uh, uh I guess 16 I was still living in Winnipeg and she was in Vancouver and I you know was out in Vancouver visiting her and I was like oh I need to tell my older sister that I'm gay this is going to be a really important thing and um we were driving in the car and uh I was like, this is what I need to tell her. And I was like, Tanya, you have to pull over. I got to tell you something really important. And I was all like <laughs> emotional and like shaky. And she was like laughing at me. I was like, well, what do you have to tell me? And like, she wouldn't stop the car. And so I like just said it. I was like, I'm gay. And then she like pulled over the car and we like talked. And um, 
but you know, she's, she's someone that always, um, supported me through every part of who I am and what I wanted to do. And when I, you know, decided in my twenties, I'm going to try and leave Canada and, you know, get an immigration lawyer and like do these thousand steps to try and like actually legally go to the United States to pursue these dreams I have. She was one of the first people to be like, well, yeah, you should do it. You've got to fucking do it. Like why, why not? Like why, why wouldn't you? Um, so I don't know. Like I, I, I feel like, um, she was so many things to me. Um, and also like in terms of your question about like uh, losing a sibling, I, I haven't lost a parent or, um, you know, uh, a close friend that wasn't my sibling or uh, a partner or spouse or anything. So I, I don't really know how to compare it um, other than um, it like in terms of what happened here, it, it like really like created a huge crater in our family and like, you know, broke our family in a lot of ways. You know, that crack is always going to be there, but you know, our family still, <laughs> still together and like going, going strong. But um, you know, the, the cracks are there to see. Um, my sister had two kids when she died oh. um, and they were only 12 and 16 at the time. So my parents ended up um, taking them in wow. because my sister had a douchebag husband oh, no. um, oh. that she had just separated from just before her death. Um, and he didn't like step up to, uh, <laughs> take his kids and be a father to them when my sister died. Um, but it, it, that all worked out, I guess, for the best, because um, I think my parents taking in their grandchildren um, somehow helped them have something to focus on and somewhere to like put their energy and their love, yeah. um, which I also kind of could see if that hadn't happened. I could, I could really picture my parents not um, knowing how to, how to move through this. Um, but like they you had said, where does the love go? Right. Yeah. 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 So yeah. they had to be there for their grandchildren, my niece and nephew who, who, uh, yeah, were 12 and 16. Um, so now they're like adults in their twenties, which is wild. Yeah. And I hate to tell you, but there are stories where sometimes the spouse, well, they decide to move or they decide to and they take the kids with them. And so right. therefore you lo you're losing the kids too. And I've known grandparents that have been in support groups because, because of that, because of, because of the death of their child, their adult child, they also lost their grandchildren in some way. So it was incredible that you, you all had the kids those years. You know, I think the other thing about losing a sibling, there's almost like implicit memory. Like, I mean, you spent 24 or 27 years or 20 years, 18 years, right? Living together in the same house or close to that. Or knowing yeah, on holidays I mean, and all those things. Yeah, like she yeah. she was uh, such a bit older than me that she she moved out of the house, um, you know, much before I was like eighteen, of course. But um, but yeah, you know, like exactly like off what you're saying for sure. Yeah. Like this this um the siblingness is like oh you're the person that like understands 
my parents as close to the way that I understand them. Exactly. Um, yeah. You're the person that I can talk to about um, things that seem to be the building blocks of like what made us who we are, because you understand my childhood in ways that most other people probably couldn't. So totally. it was, yeah, losing the person that was, um, was that kind of thing. And also someone that like, you just assume you never think you're going to, you know, lose your, your um, sibling so young. So it was just such a shock. Yeah. It's like losing the person that you think, okay, well you hope, and obviously people die all the time, but you know, I had thought, okay, my sister's going to be, um, you know, we're going to like be friends <laughs> in, in our like eighties and, you know, we will have gone through, uh, seeing our parents' death at that time. So everything felt like it was, it was everything. a real, like out of order. It's totally out of order kind of thing. It's complicated when something like that happens. I feel like when we lose people that really get us, whoever that person might be like, there's so many people in life that you can love and like love so much. You can marry them. You can date them. You can be their best friend. They could be your parent. They can be your whatever. But like we have very few Just people few. who deeply get us. And it's like yeah. not always the same thing, right? Like it's not always our partner. It's not always one of our parents, but it, it is somebody. I'd say most, almost everyone, if they're lucky, has someone who gets them for better or worse. And when you lose that person who gets you, it's so difficult because like, again, for me, it was my dad. My dad just yeah. understood me. Like we were like, had that kind of thing. Like it was one person who really got me like, and, and again, mom, no offense to you. I love you. And you understand me, but dad and I just had a different relationship. You know, we were just on the same wavelength and it sounds like you had that with your sister. And like, it struck me at some point, I was like, how long can you go through life ungotten? You know, like, oh my gosh. like, how do you be that person anymore? And I like, for me, that's, I was like, damn it. That's what it hurts. Like, it's like, you're turning, you're like trying to turn on the lights or something and they just won't go on. And it's like, well, I, you know, you need to turn the lights on at some point. Like, and how do you do it? Because you can't, you can form other like serious relationships with people, but you can't like, you can't make that happen. You can't like force that to happen. It's like in there. And then can you go ungotten for five years? Can you go ungotten for six months? Can you go ungotten for the rest of your life? But there's a gift. There's a whole point is though, I think is that there's also a gift to being gotten and you use that as you move ahead. You never lose that person getting you. You don't really lose them. If we yeah, are so close to somebody, they're a part of you. But those are those yeah. times when there are those unspoken things that you feel like you just need to like, like the world is against me today and I can complain to people and I could write it down in my journal and I could smoke cigarette, but like, I can't quite scratch the itch I need to by talking to that one person who truly understands the specific problem, you know? And that's really fucking hard. And I think yeah. like, we don't really honor that necessarily enough and like really just kind of have to sit with that and be like, wow, this is the loss this is the loss. Like, you know what I mean? This is very, that's a very hard pill to swallow. I think, I don't know what you, what do you think? But. No, I, I totally agree. And like, I feel, you know, very lucky. Like I know we're talking about a bad thing and about loss, but I feel like a very lucky person who's lucky to, from what you're saying, feel like 
I have a good amount of people that I feel get me and then mm. I get in return, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, back to that, like, uniqueness of each and every person's relationship, yeah, that loss will never be there. That type of being got won't be back in that same way because she's gone. Um, but I do feel really lucky to have to have the, the people around me, like, from that time and now, you know, that I count as like the most important like relationships in my life. I, I, I really feel lucky to have, to have that in my life. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, so Zara mentioned before that you wrote a piece or a play, uh, something about the loss. Yeah. When, so at the time of her death, I was, um, just starting to, um, create some pieces, uh, uh, like kind of solo performance pieces that I was creating with my creative partner, Nathan Schwartz. And, um, they were really, um, we were looking at, uh, things from my personal life. And, uh, this first piece was called tender pits. And, um, it was, it began as a kind of spoof of the powers of positive thinking. And we were looking at all those parts of my life that I had described earlier, this kind of like charmed idea of life and this idea that I had of myself as being a wizard of positive thinking and um, kind of an extreme optimist and kind of exploring that and, and, and spoofing it. Um, and in the very first run of that show, that's when my sister died. So the run was canceled and um, I left New York and I went to be with my family in Vancouver. Um, but Nathan and I had some like dates booked to do the show a few months later already planned. So when I got back to New York, we decided to um, address my sister's death in the context of the show that we'd already created. So I really feel like that show um, kind of like I was saying about my family and like there being a crack that now you can just see that crack. I feel like that show tender pits um, went from being this kind of um, kind of like spoofy clown show satirizing cliches of positivity and pseudo spiritualism and things like the secret and manifesting your life yeah. into actually being more of a, um, kind of question of is it possible to um to navigate through real pain and real loss and still remain a positive happy person um so that was like the main question of the show i i guess um and, and went from being kind of a joke about optimism and the powers of positive thinking to really like witnessing someone um trying to put the pieces of something back together because in a structural way, we really left the show as it was, but just added in this, like um, this big crack. Mm. Um, and from there, Nathan and I decided to continue creating work that was coming out of that same project. You know, it kind of became a trilogy of pieces. Um, but the second one was the one that Zara saw um, which, um, was really more focused from the beginning of its creation on anger within grieving and, um, leaving that positive 
optimistic clown version of myself to the side in order to look at who I am if I fully embrace <laughs> um, these feelings of rage and anger um, and what that looks like. And um, so that that piece was really about trying to explore that kind of um, darker energy within grief and within myself that I hadn't um, really like swam in before. So that mm. show, I mean, you, you, you saw it. So you, you know, it, yeah, it was incredible. Truly. Well, thank you. Yeah. To this day, I actually speak about it sometimes saying it's the best, one of the best pieces of theater I've ever seen. I like really was moved by it. It was really wonderful. You're a very yeah. talented human being. Really? Yeah. Like that it was really, really incredible. It's a lot to hear from you. No, really. And it was just like such a, I was just so struck by like the way like you combined like very, like the story was, it wasn't like this linear story about grief per se, but it was also very much about grief, but it was like funny. It was interesting. It was loud. It was like, it was scary, but it was like so tender and beautiful. And, uh, I just thought it was, I don't know. It was like magical. I think about it a lot. I wish I could see it again. <laughs> it was great. Wow, that, yeah. That's really, really nice to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was great. You know, I feel like one of the things about doing those pieces, like, having people be moved by them, whether or not they'd experienced a loss similar or not. Um, but the connections that were made from people um, having their own experiences of, of um, being at those, those performances have stayed with me and really have meant a lot. Um, I mean, like one of the, the things within that show that was one small element of many in that show was this idea of a dead sisters club. And um you know, I feel like that's part of the way of um, kind of using humor to get to the heart of something. And I think that was definitely one of the the tools in those pieces. But um, yeah, like the the idea of like just asking the actual audience, like, oh, does anyone else have a dead sister? Because yeah. <laughs> I do for real. I'm talking about it. It's, does anyone like raise your hand if you have one? We can be part of the Dead Sisters Club. Let's talk about it later. And it's just a quick moment in the show, but at the bars after or like whatever kind of gathering there was after these um, events, there was always people that were like, oh, I'm part of the Dead Sisters Club or I have a dead brother or dead mother or father or anyone um, and, you know, felt like they could say they were part of this this club, which sounds so morbid, um, but also helps with this feeling of like no isolation or, or, or like connectedness to people. It's important. It's deeply important. I mean, it's why we do this show. You know what I mean? It's just like the kind of like breaking down of the unnecessary stigma surrounding grief and loss. And it really is unnecessary. And it's just like, like I said this before, it just adds a layer of pain that doesn't need to be there. The regular pain that's already there is enough. It's like, we don't need the extra pain of like being like, I'm a, I'm nobody wants, you know what it is? Like, no, the feeling of like, nobody really wants my to hear about what's happening to me because it's too sad. You know what I mean? It's a bummer. It's a, like, it's weird. It's a buzzkill. It's like yucky. It's unsavory. And it's like, it's not, it shouldn't be, you know what I mean? And like, right. imagine if we could just take that part away. The loss is hard enough. You know what I mean? Let alone like yeah, the otherness. Totally. 
yeah. you mentioned that you had to lay, put aside your joking part. I don't remember the words you used, but I always believe in the duality because what you were really mm. saying is there's that duality of being able to have humor and pain or joy and and grief at the same time. So I think to have humor about it is so such a potent thing because we have duality. We have opposite feelings at the same time. Definitely, yeah. It was such a, just what a wild time it was. And in terms of like the thread of how out of order it seems when someone dies young and um, off the like schedule, um, you know, the, the night before my sister's funeral, my grandmother passed away. Oh. Um, and so their funerals were a week apart. And it just, I just remember like, in relation now back to a much earlier question that Bobby asked about like losing a sibling in particular, I, I feel like it was so eclipsing of anything else and of the loss of my grandmother, which was at 87 and felt very normal that I almost had like guilt around like this, like sense that at the time I didn't have the right um, feelings for losing my grandmother or like it, it, it sounds wrong to say but I felt like oh I don't care like that's fine that's regular right um, right and and it kind of also shone a, a even brighter spotlight on how psychotic it felt and and wrong and backwards that my sister had died because my sister was the eldest of all the grandchildren in quite a big family and um if you imagine being at your grandmother's funeral you imagine being there with that person who gets you and you get them and you guys get the intricacies and details and complexities of your family. Um, so to be at my grandmother's funeral a week later and have my sister not there also felt really um, just insane. And, and of course, like my mother lost her mom and daughter within a week of each other. Um, so I, I, I really think that if my mom hadn't, had like her granddaughter and grandson mm. um, come to live with them, she would have like not, you know, yeah. figured out a way through that. Yeah, those converge those convergences are very tough. Yeah, um, yeah. You had mentioned in our little pre-interview, and we we're talking about kind of the <laughs> intersection of food and grief, and some foods that you know uh, made you maybe think about the loss, or that like were part of the loss. And you had mentioned something that you ate yeah. after your sister passed. And, <laughs> and I thought it was your response to like, why I thought it was so cute and sweet. Like, can you just share with our, with our listeners what, what that was? Yeah. So the item we're speaking of is a McDonald's filet fish sandwich. And um, yeah, when asked about the convergence of grief and a food item, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's because um so my sister had a really sudden heart condition. Um, uh, she was brought to a hospital where they were like, your heart's deteriorating. We're going to induce a coma um, and then be able to do some surgeries. And while you're in the coma, your body will have a chance to heal. So this all happened really fast. And um, I'm in Vancouver, I mean, in New York doing this show. And my family in Vancouver is very much like, well, they put her in the coma. Um we're all being positive. Like no one knew how to talk about it. They were all just not letting themselves think that the 
that, that anything really that bad could happen, that these doctors are going to do these things they're saying they're going to do and she'll be fine. But of course, um, four days into this coma, her body shut down and um, they had to like take her off the machines that she was on. So she died. And by the time I got from New York to um, Vancouver, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours had passed since she had died in the hospital. Um, my two younger sisters, my 16-year-old niece, the daughter of my sister who had just died, and a cousin of mine picked me up at the airport when I landed. And it was probably around midnight, I think. And the image of like <laughs> this vehicle, like kind of, it felt so cinematic. And I still picture in my head that this like car full of all of these um, women, uh, uh, family members of mine swooping into like the airport <laughs> arrivals area and my youngest sister, Alana, like kind of flying out of the car as it felt like before it even stopped, like this one motion of the car swinging over and the door opening and her running around with like uh, this long coat she had on that's like blowing in the wind and like grabbing me and that's just crying. Um, so that's my arrival in Vancouver. And then it's like a hour plus drive out to the suburbs where my parents' house is, where everybody is now at. So in this hour drive, still obviously everyone's in shock that this has even happened. Um, and I've been traveling all day because I had to fly from New York to Toronto. And it was actually when I landed in Toronto that I heard that, yes, she had died because I that like, she was, I guess, taken off the life support machines during my flight from New York to Toronto. So I land as soon as you get that, oh, my cell phone can work again and everyone's checking their Oof. phones. That's the, the information I got. And then I'm like in a congested aisle on the plane waiting to like get off and then wait another couple hours to get on a flight across the country from Toronto to Vancouver. So it's very late um, and we're driving this hour to my parents' house and I haven't eaten anything. And then we decide to go through this McDonald's drive-thru. And then I, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> but I just wanted to order a filet fish sandwich, which I don't think I'd ever had before even. It just, I don't know. If, I, I don't think I was conscious about it. But it must have felt like it matched the uh, insanity and um, <laughs> nonsensical nature of everything going on. So that's what I ate on the car ride to my parents. And it, it you know, to this day, I still think of it as being like a, um, it feels like what you eat when your sister dies. Mm, yeah. <laughs> a, um, a fish sandwich a fish from sandwich. McDonald's. Yeah, it's a really, I don't know, it's kind of a tender story. I mean, it's an extremely tender story. And it's just interesting because it's like these anchoring things. I think that in trauma, when that happens, there are so many things that fly away from your memory. And right, like it's the couple little things that anchor you back to remembering what happened. And I loved the story because like, the, well, I mean, of course, you tell it and you're funny and charming. And so it's, a you know, as funny as it could possibly be for such a serious story. But like, it's also just a good reminder of that, like, we like lose our minds in these situations. Like truly, you know, time goes so fast. Like just talking about getting the text that your sister had passed away. Like when you turn your phone on, that's so traumatic. It's so sad. It's so 
like probably more traumatizing than you can. I mean, maybe you have pressed this, but it's just, just hearing it. It's so wild, you know, and sad. And like, yeah, those parts of the like journey yeah. to my family are very like visceral in my memory. But like you're saying, yeah, these anchors of like, oh, yeah. like I, I really feel like I remember the, 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 the waiting in that plane yeah. aisle, like in this like insane kind of way. And yeah. I remember on the next flight, which is like four and a half hours or whatever from Toronto to Vancouver, um, now my sister's passed away. And I remember sitting next to this family, maybe they were German or Dutch. Um, they had the whole row except for the seat that I was in next to them all. Oh, wow. <laughs> and just like me, like sobbing the whole flight and then like yeah. telling the woman next to me what I was doing and where I was going yeah. and why. Um, and just because like, I didn't know how out, like I didn't know, I couldn't contain any of it. Um, yeah. but yeah. And then that fish sandwich, that yeah. fish sandwich that from McDonald's. Fish sandwich. That fucking <laughs> paleo fish. God like a real, it. um, a it's... real grief meal. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just, yeah. It's interesting though. Like if it had just been a burger, what have you remembered it? And then what have you remembered the time around it? Like it just, you know, the, I, I think it's, it's fascinating that, you know, you picked something that was strange and memorable because maybe somewhere down, I don't know. You wanted to remember it like this, the moment, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe yeah, it was just a coincidence, but it's just, no, uh, but that's a good point that like maybe yeah. unconsciously you are doing those things to like, to implant these moments in your soul, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I don't know, like it's just going through a drive through McDonald's with like all of your family on the way to see your rest of your family after your sister died which is a really like one in a lifetime thing hopefully um but yeah like why not just continue to make it as like totally unique and special and um uh like uh, rise to the occasion of weirdness by like making it very different (laughs) totally (laughs) so at the end of each episode and I hate to say that this is near the end of the episode because truly like a it's so wonderful to see your face and just to get to talk to you because you're a friend but like this is just such a good chat but we ask everyone the same question which is just that if you you know had any advice for yourself uh as a as your younger self in the beginning of this you know kind of grief journey and you think back at maybe knowing what you know now and having gone through it like is there anything that you would tell your younger self having been through it my gosh, I don't know. That's such a hard question. <laughs> it's a big question. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting because I don't feel like, I mean, not that this is what you're asking specifically, but I don't feel like I have any regrets necessarily about like the way I navigated grief or allowed myself to move through it. But um, I don't know. I think maybe one thing I've learned that I would... Um, you know, in part two, myself back then might be understanding actually the power of that connection and maybe having more care on how that power is used. As in, um, I feel like at the time, you know, I was just like surviving through the grief and like doing my best, but I feel like, um, 
by like splashing it around um possibly in a um not necessarily carefully chosen way um i think that there may have been moments where the openness that i had about losing my sister may have created a space for someone else to think that I was sharing something very, very, very special to just them when I was actually maybe like tossing that around all over the place. And so I guess my, my reaction to that question is like maybe thinking that, um, there were times when I could have been a little more, um, selective and careful with the people I was, um, giving all those emotions to. Yeah. You know, the question like, is that, you know, just to kind of answer that piece about, is it a regret? Like I, it's not, I asked this question cause I'm so curious just having been through my own grief experience of the ways, not of like the regret or things we think we did wrong at all, because there is no wrong. Right. Like that's yeah. so like, and that's like not even a way I would, you know, I would ever think we should treat ourselves with like having like regrets or shaming ourselves. How we, but more or less just being like, you know, for folks who are listening who might have like yet to go through a serious grief experience or handling their own, like, just like, you know, the things like we think about what grief will be like or what, how we'll handle it or like with our expectations on ourselves of what we should or shouldn't do or, you know what I mean? And then you, you come some time from it you get to like look back on it and it's like, wow, like, you know, Hey, I would tell myself to do X, Y, and Z because I've been through it. And maybe I was like hard on myself and I caused myself undue pain or stress or whatever. And it's interesting to hear how everybody reacts to it. You know, we've had people be like, I wouldn't change a fucking thing. You know what I mean? And some people are like, yeah. I would have, I would breathe. And, and I just think it's a kind of like a beautiful way of demonstrating how differently people cope, you know what I mean? And like move through this process and what people find as the most important little memories and kind of like the most important takeaways, because there is so much to learn in this process, which is another thing I think yeah. they don't teach you in fucking school or wherever the fuck you're supposed to learn well, things. Kier- Kierkegaard said that we understand things looking back and we have to live things moving forward. That's just mm. the way it is. Yeah. So we do understand more when we look back. So this has been such a wonderful um, time with you, Anthony. One of the other things that we do at the end of our um, podcast is that we try to imagine that if we could sit down together now and have a nice meal together, you know, what would we eat? What would we bring? What would we make? Because it would be so nice to continue this this wonderful conversation, but unfortunately our time is limited. But um, so I wonder, what could we, what would we all bring to a feast tonight with the three of us? Well, I will go ahead and say that since you are Canadian and I am thinking about like still seafood because it's still like late summer, I think I'd bring some mussels. Mm. like a big pot of mussels now i'm not sure are you a muscle guy yeah totally okay great my dad was a pilot for air canada and when i was young he would be able to take me on layover sometimes and Uh when i was pretty young he was like oh i have like a day and a half off in halifax like you should come with me so then i like get to like fly with my dad in the cockpit we go to halifax and that's the first time i'd ever like seen a big bowl of mussels oh that's fun 
mouthfuls and fries. So how are you going to prepare them, Zora? <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad you asked, Bobby. For my <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. Um, since it's late summer and we still have some delicious stuff left, I went to the market earlier today and got like some multicolored, you know, heirloom cherry tomatoes. So I'm thinking like some like, and I have an open bottle of Prosecco. Now, don't think that I'm just using leftovers for our meal, guys, but I am. So I'm going to like use some Prosecco, some cherry tomatoes, shallots, like a handful of like basil, some dill, and like tons and tons of butter melted in a giant squeeze of like a roasted lemon. And then we'll sop it up with a baguette. That sounds so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my contribution. Okay, so I think maybe, obviously, a filet of fish from McDonald's is only for me to eat <laughs> um, when when a sister dies. So, like, yeah. you know, yeah. hopefully I won't do that again until I'm, like, 100. Yeah. But maybe an elevated version of that. <gasps> like, maybe we make, like, a really cool, like, crispy fish sandwich with, like, an aioli and, like, a really good coleslaw. Mm. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> something, love that. Something like that. That's one of my all-time favorite things. It yeah, is. me too. Like the re- like the actual um, celebratory happy version yeah. of, of what I had to do on that day. Right. I was I was in Montauk this weekend. I had three fish sandwiches. So I did. Three at Wait, one where were time. You? Well, no, I kept she eating was in fish. Montauk. I love fish. I love fish sandwiches. Yeah, of love them. Yeah. So I think we yeah. just need a beverage, and I think uh, I don't know. I keep I'm going to make uh, blueberry lemonade Ooh. with some vodka. Mm. With some vodka. Okay. Bobby yep. and her blueberry okay. lemonade. <laughs> right. That sounds delicious. Yeah. Okay. It's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. <laughs> Anthony, I just want to say, like, you know, you're just one of the. You're a very magnetic person. You're a wonderful person, and you're a very like really just a sweet human being. And you know, even from just getting to sit with you, which I regret that this isn't video recorded for like our listeners, because you have the most sympathetic and kind <laughs> eyes and eyebrows. <laughs> Of anyone I've ever seen. And you're a very handsome guy, and your whole face is very pleasant to look at. But really, you just have these, like, eyes that are so expressive and so sweet and just kind of watching, like, through this, you know, interview, how, you know, you kind of communicated through your eyes was very – it was very touching. And I know that this stuff is so – really, like, it's such a big ask, and it's very generous – to like come and to spend an hour like kind of like digging through all this stuff you know and 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 not even like just digging through it in a way where you're doing the digging but someone else is digging right and it's like well maybe we ask a question and you're like oh I didn't really want to dig over there or you know what I mean and so it's really like a generous thing to allow us to kind of prod around your emotions for like for an hour and to be so vulnerable and open and it's just I really appreciate it and thank you so much I am so happy to have been able to do it. Really, it's it's been so so great to see both of you and talk to both of you. And I, I really do hope that maybe next summer in the New York area we'll have that meal. Ooh, like I think let's that do it. I would trying love to imagine to. it is something great to look forward to. I can. It would it. be great. I would really yeah. love that. Yeah, you can come Me out too. to Bobby's. We'll go to Long Island and hang out. It'll be fun. Yes. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, and thank you because it really, I really believe, and I know from the feedback we got from folks who are listening, like it just it helps, and like you're just you're such a good because of what you do because you're a writer and a performer. Like you're a great storyteller, and like you know it's hard sometimes to tell our own stories, 
you know, even when those are the ones we know the best, it's hard. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> you're really, it was really sweet and wonderful to have you. And like, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both. I'm so happy. Thanks, yes, Anthony. Be, here. <laughs> be well. Hope to see you. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. In Wisconsin, cheese is our thing. Wisconsin is the only state in the country that requires a license to make cheese. From curds to cheddar, blue to brick, Wisconsin cheesemakers can do it all. We blend tradition with innovation to create an incredible variety of cheeses that you just can't get anywhere else. You've heard of a PhD, but have you heard of a PH cheese? otherwise known as the Wisconsin Master Cheesemaker Program. This rigorous study of cheese is an elite accomplishment earned by only 80 talented cheesemakers in Wisconsin, and the program is only one of two in the world. Becoming a master cheesemaker takes 13 years and is basically like a doctorate in a specific variety of cheese, with intense requirements to succeed. Our Master Cheesemaker Program allows makers to perfect both the art and science of their craft in a tradition so rich you can taste it. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.